Before Chuck reads um, the scripture reading for this morning, I wanted to provide a little introduction about where we are in Luke's gospel. This fall, we looked at the first half of Luke's gospel, and now for the winter and Lent season, we're going to look at the second half. And if you see that we're beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, you're going to say, well, there's 24 chapters to Luke. Wouldn't halfway be 12? And you're right, but that's not where the divide is. The divide comes in this critical verse that forms sort of a hinge of Luke's gospel, and that's chapter 9, verse 51, and you'll hear Chuck begin with that. But first, chapter 9 is so very important. I can't believe we didn't have uh, a sermon in that section before we got to this part. Geographically, this chapter signals a change from the region of Galilee where Jesus has conducted his public ministry to moving toward Jerusalem. It also is a change in the message of God's kingdom, which has been one of blessings and, and healing and miracles. And now Jesus is going to speak more words of challenge and confrontation, particularly in the face of evil and opposition. And at this point, Luke starts to concentrate on Jesus' identity. Even Herod is curious, who is this that he keeps hearing about uh, in this chapter? Jesus is con And Luke concentrates on Jesus' mission and begins to speak of his impending death. In, in Mark's gospel, for example, Jesus foretells his death in three chapters, uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10. And there's something that happens surrounding each one of those foreshadowing events and, and, and foreshadowing pronouncements. In Luke, in this chapter, Jesus mentions his impending death twice in a very concentrated way. And then Jesus raises the bar of what it means to be his follower, saying, whoever would learn from me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The opening verse, as I mentioned, forms this hinge because all who hear it must decide for themselves whether they will become a follower of Jesus or not. And what we decide affects everything. When the days drew near for Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. As they're going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus said, Follow me. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others 
and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborers deserve to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, Go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. You know this, the kingdom of God has come near. The word of the Lord. In his book, Basic Christianity, John R.W. Stott tells how Jesus' teaching is unlike any other founder of other religions. This is what Stott says. The most striking feature of the teaching of Jesus is that he was constantly talking about himself. He spoke about God and God's kingdom, but that he was the one who had come to inaugurate it. He even did not hesitate to refer to it as my kingdom. This self-centeredness, and I know that's not a word we associate with Jesus, but I think Stott's making his point. This self-centeredness of the teaching of Jesus immediately sets him apart from the other great religious teachers. They were self-effacing, and Jesus was self-advancing. They pointed others away from themselves, saying, that's the truth so far as I can perceive it, follow that. Jesus said, I am the truth, follow me. With such an opinion of himself, it's not surprising that Jesus called people to himself. Indeed, he did more than issue an invitation, he uttered a command. Some followers of Jesus, as we know, referred to him as rabbi or teacher, But rabbis in those days did not call disciples to themselves. Rather, rabbis were pursued by other people. The people took the initiative to learn from the rabbi. Likewise, Jesus never debates with his disciples as a method of teaching that was commonly employed by the rabbis of his day. The concept of being a follower, someone who learned from the teacher, took on a whole new meaning with Jesus. I think Franciscan priests 
and author Richard Rohr sums it up well. He said it this way, it has always been much easier to worship Jesus than to follow him. Because we think worship to be rather harmless and without risk. Of course, that's wrong. But, um, but following Jesus changes everything. I think Luke would agree. And I think that's precisely what Luke is getting at by his arrangement of his material in this particular chapter. He closes this chapter by offering three vignettes presented in staccato fashion that emphasizes both the stringent demands of discipleship and the challenge of following both in the direction and the path that Jesus is going. One candidate comes with eager and unconditional offer to, saying, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. To this enthusiasm, Jesus reminds him that, the nature, that in nature God provides housing for foxes and birds. But when it comes to human shelter, that requires effort and hospitality. This eager applicant is also told he's about to throw in his lot with a cause that is soon to become an unpopular one. It reminds me of the day I told a personal friend that I had left the Assemblies of God denomination that I grew up in and was becoming Presbyterian. And he looked at me and said, you do realize you're moving away from the fastest growing denomination to the fastest dying denomination. And I said, I realize that. And he goes, okay then, you know, it's like I warned you, you know. He himself was a Presbyterian. Um, why did I go there? I, I'm completely thrown off now. Okay, following Jesus is, is, is cast in this context of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem that will end with suffering and death. And the first thing he makes clear about being a follower is this is not easy. Not everyone is up to it. His journey includes the prospect of rejection and hostility and will end in a cross. The first time I ever heard Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words um, about the cost of following Jesus, I have never forgotten them. They're hard to get out of your mind. So now I'm going to put them there for you, whether you were going to read him or not. He says this, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing, happy life. It meets us at the beginning as we embark upon this journey. We are to surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. That's what it means to be a follower. Jesus' call to another candidate is met with qualification, probably the best excuse ever given. The man says, yes, I'll follow you, but first, can I defer my start until after I fulfill one of the most sacred and binding duties of this life, particularly that of a son when responsible for burying his father? Jesus' reply is startling. His words, let the dead bury the dead, sound harsh and offensive. 
But the stark contrast makes the point. Even the most pressing matter which fulfills the duty to honor a parent is considered secondary to Jesus' call to follow him and announce God's kingdom. Jesus' call takes precedence over everything. The third encounter is reminiscent of the prophetic call of Elisha to be the follower and successor to Elijah, the prophet. But before he can join his mentor, Elisha goes to visit his family to say farewell, goodbye. By comparison, the presence of the kingdom of God that Jesus announces goes beyond anything Elisha would ever experience. And the challenge to journey with Jesus, to keep moving forward, comes through loud and clear when Jesus says these words, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Anyone who's ever tried to plow a straight line knows that once you look back, the furrow going forward is not going to be straight. Try driving. Try, try driving forward looking backward. It doesn't work very well. Um... um there's bound to be some mishap. In each of these vignettes, there's no place for hesitation or delay. The call of Jesus involves risk, it is costly, and it takes precedence over all other obligations or family bonds. Such is the nature of Jesus' invitation and command to follow me. I don't know how many of you saw last Sunday evening's Golden Globe uh, presentation, but Jeff Bridges received um, the Cecil B. DeMille Life Achievement Award as an actor. And in his acceptance speech, um, he was thanking various people, and then he started to tell a couple more, more stories, and I thought, oh no, he's gone off the rails. Someone's going to have to pull him. You know, they're going to have to start playing the music, you know, which says, you're done. Thank goodness there's no musicians up here. <laughs> um, but then he brought it all back together in the most mesmerizing way. Um, and I thought, this is as good as a sermon. And so I decided to use part of it as part of my sermon today. He tells the story of going into the office of um, director and screenwriter um, Michael Cimino who was directing his, the very first film that, that uh, Jeff Bridges would be a co-star in, um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And he goes into Chimino's office and sits down and says, um, I hate to tell you this so late in the process, but I think you've made a big mistake. Hiring me to be one of these co-stars is, is wrong. I, I can't identify with this, this role. I'm not feeling it. And I, I, I think you've made, I, I think you want to choose someone else. And then the camera spans all the other actors out, into the, out in the audience. And they're all like, yeah, I've been there. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've had those feelings myself. After all, acting is playing, right? It's, it's imitating something that you're not. And... They do that for a living. We do it 
uh, and get in a lot of trouble. Um, it's not a good thing to do. But he, so he says this to Chimino, and Chimino, he said, said, did you ever play tag when you were younger? And Jeff says, well, yeah. And so he reaches over and touches him and says, you're it. You're Lightfoot. And then Bridges did the most amazing thing. He looked out over all of his colleagues and said, we've all been tagged. Each and every one of us. And he went on to say, we're alive. And I didn't quite understand what he meant by that. But, uh, but I, think he's, I think he captured something of what Jesus is doing. Jesus has tagged us. Now, we like the more biblical word that has a little more fluff to it that says we're chosen. After all, you want to be chosen instead of tagged because there's a, when you're tagged, you've got to go find someone else. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, I've been tagged. Um, you feel the weight of the responsibility until you can release it again. But when you're chosen, it's like, I'm chosen, you know. I can do something or not. I'm still chosen. Uh, but the whole point of being chosen in biblical terms is to, is to bear a responsibility. It's not about privilege and blessing. Yes, that's true, but it's, it's for a purpose and responsibility. And that's what I think this being tagged conveys. We're called to a life of cooperation with God, of, of adventure, yes, but also with incredible possibilities. It's a wide open life to be a follower of Jesus. You'll notice that after each of these stories that Luke tells, you hear the word of Jesus, but you don't hear the response of the disciple. Did they, what did they do after they heard Jesus' words? And I think Luke did that on purpose because we as the reader have to decide what would we do? How would we respond? To Jesus' words. In the next scene or section, Jesus sends out 70 disciples in advance of his itinerary. Where I'm about to go, I'm sending you to prepare the way. And his instructions to them is very telling about the role we are to play. And I think it's very telling also about the way we often hear about Christians in the news. It's the direct opposite of what you hear in these instructions. Number one, there's a natural reluctance and hesitation to engage in Jesus' mission. It's like, oh boy, um, do I have to say that I'm a Christian? Do I have to witness to that person? Do I have to tell them there's good news and I know what it's about, but you might not be interested, so I'm going to keep quiet? Um, and so Jesus says, you know, the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few, so pray. And you're not just praying that someone else will join you. You're really praying that you'll have the courage to be a laborer, that you'll actually engage and, and be part of Jesus' mission. And anytime God asks us to do something, prayer is a necessity. And it's true of the advancement of God's kingdom. It takes prayer. The second thing is you'll sense this grave urgency and consequence about those who hear this message. 
This may be the only or last time they'll hear such a message. So it's very important that it be communicated. And that's the impression you get from what Jesus is telling his disciples. Not only are the 70 to represent both a preparation and invitation of God's kingdom come, but they are to also bear witness to its reality, much like we're called to do today. The third dimension or aspect that I see in these instructions is that despite expected danger, Jesus then reduces their resources and self-reliance. He's saying, you're going on a trip, and all the things you would normally take, leave them at home. Don't take any extra money. Don't take any extra clothing. Take the bare minimum. This readiness to be vulnerable mirrors Jesus' service of God's kingdom and its receptivity. When we're vulnerable in our communication, it creates an openness unlike any other. And this is the part in particular. I just heard this week in the news that some Christian group came out against transgender people about something. And I just thought, what are we doing? What are we doing? When someone is in, someone is trying to be their authentic self and, and seeking to discover who are we to say you're wrong and we know what's right for you. But what if we were to say, I've struggled with my identity too. I've struggled to understand who I am and my sense of belonging in this world. What's that like for you? Can you imagine what that would do to somebody's heart to hear somebody talk that way? Someone shared just between services uh, a story, and I didn't get their permission, so I'm not going to use their name, but they were living in another part of the world and engaging with a local mission of outreach to uh, people in the sex trade and going there regularly. And because there was a language barrier, they were relying upon the missionary that they were with to communicate at all. And so they're thinking they want to bring a word of encouragement or some sort of, of biblical um, uh, hope to these people. And and had been doing that for, for a few months in succession. And then this particular person was having cancer treatment, and as a result of the treatment that particular week, unable to go because of, because of the illness. And so the, the recipients who received both food and clothing and some, some personal necessity said, well, where is she? And her colleague said, well, she's, she's ill. And so the next time she was there, they all brought her gifts and spoke to her about her importance and why she is valued by them. And she said from that point on, it totally changed the relationship. When she was the vulnerable one, she was the recipient. There was a sense of learning on everyone's part and an openness to what God would do rather than our directing things in the way we think best or we think we know. Someone else told me as a response to the sermon, they said, why is it we're always the Marthas when we hear Jesus call and not the Marys? Why do we get busy and think we know what to do and then get stressed out in our doing when Jesus just invites us to listen and learn? 
and just be. The fourth thing that I see in this instruction is that their work include, included acts of healing and caregiving, but above all, they were charged to bring the message of God's peace. And that was not a popular message. Imagine Samaritans having to hear from uh, 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 Jews who they were looked down upon. I mean, Samaritans felt looked down upon by Jews because they were not um, ethnically of the same. They weren't 100% Jewish. They were only part Jewish, and so therefore um, they were considered less than now imagine if you come in with some announcement of, I've got good news for you and here's what you need to learn versus coming in and say, peace. God's peace to you. God's wholeness. God's blessing and well-being to you. Completely different message. Similarly, imagine that you're living in a land that is your own, but it's occupied and ruled by another. The Romans who are ruthless, and you're supposed to speak words of peace to your enemy. Anybody who has anything to do with military would say, don't do that. That's a sign of weakness. And yet Jesus confronts evil not with power and force, but with peace and humility and suffering. Because God's kingdom changes everything. And the manner in which it's delivered matters. So guess what? You've been tagged. We're it. We are the ones Jesus calls on to follow him. The ones he sends out in mission and ministry to our world. We're to be his witnesses of who he is, his identity and his mission and his life, and ambassadors who announce God's kingdom and point to its presence and the reality of its presence wherever we see it and help others discover it for the first time. May we say yes. Amen.